alive. Thrill me. Scream! Scream for your lives! You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Oh, I know this creature of yours. When the dragon gets this old, it knows nothing but pain. Scientists are saying the future is going to be far more futuristic than they originally predicted. Welcome to Now Care More, gentlemen. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. So, celestial event. How it works. You really shook the pillars of heaven, didn't you? What's the boogeyman? As a matter of fact, it was. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Phantom Galaxy podcast, where science fiction, fantasy, and horror collide. I'm your host, Nathan Barnabaugh, and I'm also joined with my co-host, Bill Van Vagel. And Bill, how are you tonight? I am doing great. It's about minus 10 outs. I have had to shovel a couple times. I'm getting warmed up by the thought of science fiction and fantasy, so bring on the heat. Bring, bring on the heat. I saw something... Uh, today, uh, an article, something about that up in Canada, there are signs that say something about don't let the moose lick your car. Uh, Do you know anything well, about that? I, I, we're not close enough to uh, to a moose. We do have lots okay. of deer and coyotes not too far, but a moose, the you got to me- get you got to get a little bit further off the beaten track to uh, get a moose. The meeses are out of your jurisdiction. A bit. <laughs> Hopefully, because if they run into the car, I'm losing. <laughs> well, I think that was the idea that they're normally out licking salt licks, and now they're realizing salt is on the outside of cars, and so <laughs> moose towards cars is a bad thing. Anyway, before we go down that rabbit trail, I'm really excited about tonight's episode. We are doing another episode where we're going to dedicate it solely to one movie, although that doesn't seem to have stopped us in terms of going extra long on most of these. And to do that, we brought in two guests who I'm really excited about. We have... First off, we have Dave Becker is joining us again. He was with us for 2001 and with the Ray Harryhausen episode. Uh, Dave, how are you doing tonight? Um, I'm doing great, and I'm, uh, I'm glad to be back. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, b- both of those uh, previous episodes were a lot of fun. I had a great time, especially with the Harryhausen, because I got to actually see a few movies of his I hadn't seen in a lot of years and a, a few that I hadn't seen at all. Uh, you know, prior to recording, and um, that was great. And of course, 2001. Uh, you know, like I think you had mentioned in your post, uh, Nathan, how we ended up going longer than the film, you know, which is, is pretty impressive when you could talk talk about the movie longer than the film. That's pretty impressive. Um, but I think there's another one tonight. Uh, this movie, I think, uh, is another one that we could, you know, just sort of go on and on about. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> because and so and Dave, of course, he's from the Land of the Creeps podcast. He's also on the horror movie podcast. Mm-hmm. And you also have DVD infatuation that you have been doing over at Consider the Cinema yep. and the host at Consider the Cinema and, and previous host of horror movie podcast is Jason Piles. And I feel like I want to tap on the desk here. We have Jason Piles with us tonight. <laughs> yes. <laughs> hey, guys. Thank you. Thanks for having me on Phantom Galaxy. It's an honor. Yes, thank you so much. We're so happy to have you here. And I guess at this point, I should mention what we're talking about. Young Einstein from 1989 or something, right? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, we're, we're, actually, we're actually doing a review of 1998's Dark City, which is 
for me personally, it was one of my favorite science fiction movies. Uh, not quite up there with 2001, but in, in about that ballpark. And I wanted to find people who also really liked it. And Jay, you did over the summer, you did a colossal episode about M. Night Shyamalan's The Village, <laughs> yeah. which a really awesome listen if you guys get the chance, because I think it delves into every kind of corner and crack of that movie from the perspective of someone who really, really loves it. And every movie needs that. And The Village is a movie that benefits, I think, from listening to, to your podcast about about The Village. Wow. Thank you. We, we got to talking about Dark City and found that you also enjoyed it. So uh, we brought Dave and Jay on to talk. And Bill, this is your first time for seeing the movie. I don't think you even were aware it existed, right? I Up until, up until a week ago, I'd never heard of the film. And I'm kind of hoping that, you know, we will hit some people who may say, oh, yeah, I remember Dark City. And then some people who may not remember Dark City because it doesn't seem to have quite hit the cult status I kind of felt it would achieve when it initially came out. So what we're going to do first is just kind of we'll give you the basic, very basic setup. And I'm going to go around and just have everyone's first impressions of the movie. Again, this came out in 1998. It's directed by Alex Preuss. And it was his follow-up at that point to The Crow, which came out in 1994, uh, four years earlier. And, of course, The Crow had a, a big following. There was also the tragedy involving Brandon Lee and his death. But I remember that, you know, uh, the soundtrack of The Crow and every kind of uh, goth worth their salt showed up, <laughs> showed up in their trench coats <laughs> to see that movie at the theater. I remember that being a big thing and the Stone Temple Pilot songs and all that. But then... Dark City comes along, and I think there'd been enough time in between that everybody kind of wasn't necessarily thinking about The Crow when this movie came out. And in fact, it came out uh, under the radar, mostly because Titanic was still shoving its way through theaters at that point. That was that James Cameron comes out in December, and then is you know nobody thinks of another movie until March kind of deal. And it came out in that somewhere in February around that time. And I primarily was aware of it because I'd seen a Super Bowl trailer, which was all these amazing images and I science fiction images. And I thought, Oh, that's gotta be a big summer blockbuster. We're going to have to wait months to see. And then it says, Oh, it's coming out in February. And then when it released, I remember I would always go, and this was about a time shortly after high school, I would go to uh, the Chicago sun times website where Roger Ebert posts his reviews. And I was, you know, I, you know, I was checked that first cause it was first thing Friday morning. And I remember checking that and he gave it a four star review and the review itself was just, you know, it was gushing. It was all these great things. And I remember being like, okay, I'm going to go see this movie this weekend. And I did. And so the setup of the film is that it, it kind of, I guess, uh, it's an in media res sort of situation where you start in the middle of the story and you are not entirely certain where you are. You're gaining your bearings. And there, there's a city which looks very artificial when you first see it uh, in the sense that it looks like you're looking at miniatures. It looks almost specifically like you're looking at paintings. Uh, there's a dark, noirish looking cityscape that reminds you of Edward Hopper paintings and things like that. And we, we, we go directly into this room where we see a man who wakes up and there's a dead body on the floor. He is in that room. He's disheveled. He's in the bathtub. He doesn't know how he got there. He doesn't remember who he is. He finds clothes. He finds a briefcase. And then he heads out into the night trying to figure out who he is and where he should be going and there's also this nagging aspect of i was in a room with a murder victim and of course the police are looking for him and there's another segment of people that are looking for him who are these tall some of them are tall they are all come in all different sizes but they all are pale they wear long coats and bowler hats and they are very menacing they're chasing him at the same time there's a doctor dr schreiber who is trying to locate him 
Uh, he's played by Kiefer Sutherland. Rufus Sewell plays this character that we meet, who we learn his name is John. Uh, and then William Hurt is in the movie as well as Jennifer Connelly. William Hurt is a detective bumstead who is trying to figure out who's behind the murders, and he's on the trail of John. Jennifer Connelly is John's wife. She doesn't know where he is. She hasn't seen him in weeks. And all of these pieces are converging. John is also getting little bits of his memory back at a time. His primary memory is of a place called Shell Beach. And he sees these bright, sunny images, uh, but everything around him doesn't look like that. He's in this city, and the longer he's there, the more things don't seem right. And I uh, just want to say up front, this is going to be a spoilery episode. We're going to talk all aspects of Dark City. Uh, we will get to a certain point where I'll stop after we've given our initial feelings when we really get into the, the – the, there are some twists here. So before we get into the big twists, I will mention that. But throughout the course of the episode, we are going to spoil it a little bit. I'm going to go ahead and turn it over, though. Uh, Jay, tell me about your first time for seeing the movie and your first initial impressions. Sure, Nathan. Thank you. I think, well, I'm a huge Roger Ebert fan, and that's actually how I ended up learning about this movie, because I was uh, <laughs> I was doing church missionary service when this was released, so I was completely out of the movie loop. And then when I saw that Roger Ebert had raved about this so much, I checked it out, and I, I remember just being kind of astounded by it. I mean, I back in the day, I wasn't as much an appreciator of sci-fi as I am now, but now science fiction really kind of excites me quite a bit. But but still, the the artistic merit that is on the screen in this is is really what captured me when I saw, when I saw the images in this. It's just it's so uh, creative and rich with just visual splendor. Um, I was very impressed, and I'm I'm the type of guy as a film viewer. I do get annoyed uh, when a film is set mostly in the darkness because I always feel like I can't see anything, you know. And the only exceptions to that are probably The Descent <laughs> and and this film here. The darkness doesn't bother me at all. It's actually a great aspect of Dark City. It's funny that you mention that because I think that, yes, this movie uses the dark in the same way that old film noirs did, where it made it a part of the composition and enhances the beauty because it's considering, that's the thing I noted again looking at it, every single shot of this movie feels like it has been uh, really considered, where I agree with you. And The Descent is similar in the sense that it uses, in a different way, the darkness as a fundamental, important piece of its of its, com its construction, right? Mm -hmm. But then there's movies like, you know, particularly some of these movies that came out later where it's the darkness seems to be hiding bad special effects or hiding, you know, uh, shoddy camera work. One of the Alien versus Predator movies, I felt like that should have been made for radio. You know, it was just about <laughs> so dark that, that I couldn't see it. I remember mm -hmm. Ebert, too, would, would, would complain about movies. He always thought that they had dimmed the projector bulb. <laughs> He was always complaining that someone had dimmed the ball because the movies are so dark. But I think that here it is an active part of how well considered all of the, the frames of the movie uh, are in, in, yes. in that in that way. Yes, Nathan. And the last thing I'll just say about that is it, it actually begins to work on your mood of the film. Like it uh, to me, at least it, it psychologically and emotionally affects you as a viewer because, you know, we expect we're used to the. With circadian rhythm or whatever it's called like where <laughs> where the sun eventually comes up but in this film it is always ever dark and and 
and it starts to kind of wear on you like emotionally. Yeah, I think that's a good point. It definitely develops this very specific feeling that even movies that take place over all of one night, there's the way this movie is constructed. It gives you this idea that we don't see the sun anymore, except for certain memory. Only in memories do we see the sun. And it's almost the opposite of something like a movie like Insomnia that Nolan does, Christopher Nolan does, where the daylight is is up becomes oppressive that it's always there that you can never get any rest that it's the mm -hmm. sun is always shining through every crack and every window and so uh, i always like that because you you're right you're making the mood of the area around you sort of uh, oppressive or all-consuming as it kind of ends up here and dave how about you first time you saw this movie dark city well interestingly enough i um I first saw this, I know the exact date that I first saw this movie because I started keeping a log, a viewing log, uh, exactly one month before. It was September 7th of 2002 was the first time that I saw Dark City. And one of the things that struck me about the, the movie is I always saw, saw it as sort of a marriage of two styles. It's science fiction, definitely, but it's also got that film noir feel to it. Um, you know, with, with the detective story and the murders and William Hurt's character, that they, they've got that sort of, and it feels almost like it takes place uh, when you look at the, the, the costumes and then and the, some of the set pieces. It feels as if this movie could have been set in the 1940s. And I always liked, that was something that always uh, struck me about the film and something I always admired about the film was how it took that world of film noir and put it in a science fiction setting and brought them both in together and merged them together and did so in a really um, uh, intriguing way. I mean, you could you could argue that like Blade Runner had some film noir aspects to it and so forth. It's not it's not like it was completely original, but I think that the way that they that Proyas actually merged them together, I think, um, is is what really pulled me in. And I was like, wow, this is this is a just a, a very unique, very unusual film. And it's interesting you mentioned Blade Runner, too, because I remember going to this one and going with that feeling of, oh, this looks like, you know, the level of the set design and everything had that feel sort of a Blade Runner. It's a very different movie. I kind of feel, and we can get into this, I kind of feel there's more humanity maybe in this movie ultimately than Blade Runner. I love them both. They're two of my favorite movies. And certainly I think there's there there's a lot of humanity in the later sections of Blade Runner, but I think I was struck by, I was going and expecting this to sort of be a retread in a sense, and it really isn't. And it kind of harkens back, I guess, also to uh, the silent Fritz Lang movie. Well, two Fritz Lang movies. One of them is Metropolis. You know, there's a lot of, if, if any of you guys have seen Metropolis, there's mm -hmm. a lot of that mm -hmm. film in this one. And yes. then uh, mm -hmm. the other one is Fritz Lang's M, which was not a, a silent film. It was a little bit later with Peter Lorre, and you can almost see Kiefer Sutherland channeling Peter Lorre in this movie. <laughs> it, it, that little yeah. creepy, nebbish yeah. doctor, you know, that the, the 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 way the faces are shot of the criminals and M are very striking when you finally see the underground. There's a there's an underground sort of conclave of of these characters that are chasing um, John. And when you kind of finally see them, it sort of reminds me of M when you had all the murderers sort of lined up. And so it's interesting how you're right, Dave, it seems to borrow from all these different sources. And then what I like about this movie is this, this world that doesn't quite exactly make sense. It looks sometimes like a forties noir, but then some of the vehicles and the pieces, it looks like a universal horror film too, right? It looks it has a German expressionist feel. Right. It looks like a sci-fi movie. This could be post-apocalyptic or it could be, you know, it could be another 
another place altogether. And then when the plot actually unspools, that that actually makes sense. That's a part of the plot. Like this discordant world, it's not just like a Tim Burton world that looks that way because that's the way Tim Burton imagined it. And that's how it's going to look, you know, that we take for granted that it lives inside of his sort of skewed uh, perspective, the same way a Terry Gilliam movie lives inside Terry Gilliam's mind. Alex Preuss has done that, but he also gives a concrete reason for why this world looks the way it does. And I kind of always appreciated that. I thought that was neat. Absolutely. Yes, I agree. And, and I, I mean, along with the, with, with, along with the look of the film and, and just the, uh, the, the like I said, the sort of fi- uh, film noir uh, aspects of it. I also love how it just tosses us into the story and we are like, uh, Rufus Sewell's character. We're like John Murdoch. We don't know what the hell's going on in this movie as it's playing out. And I love that. You know, when you have Kiefer Sutherland's character saying, get out, people are coming for you. Get out of the building. You know, he calls him on the phone and we're John Murdoch. We're like, what's going on here? We, you know, and, and we're trying to, trying to get our bearings as the film is going along. And I love that Proyas did that. He put us in, you know, you, you usually you're connecting with the protagonist in a movie, but he gives us no information and we're going right along with uh, John uh, Murdoch in this film, uh, trying to figure out what's happening here in this very, very bizarre world where it's night all the time. And it seems like it could be, like I said, a film noir in the forties, but there are these uh, very strange characters um and in the first scene, the very first scene, one of them is played by Bruce Spence. And I don't think anybody, at least me, I can't see Bruce Spence without thinking the gyro captain from The Road Warrior. I immediately immediately go to the gyro captain, The Road Warrior, when I see Bruce Spence. No matter what he's done, that's just that's just everything. But he's one. He's in that very first scene as, as one of these uh, strangers. Um, and it's just this, you, you really are just, you're, it's all, you're off kilter just like John Murdoch through a lot of this movie, trying to figure out what's going on. And, oh, okay, like one guy at the desk who said, we need cash on the barrel head. But now here's a different guy saying that same, that like he just talked to John Murdoch saying the same thing, but it's a different character altogether. Because he's in an Ed Wood movie. <laughs> yeah, right. In an, Ed Wood movie, in an Ed Wood movie, you could understand it. In an Ed Wood movie, you can understand it. Yes, exactly. But for but. We're, we're assuming that this one had a slightly bigger budget than an Ed Wood movie. Um, and I loved it. I, I, I love that whole aspect of we have to catch up. I like it when a movie does that, when it just tosses you in into the mix and you have to sort of figure it out as you're going along because it's a little rewarding in a way. Like as you're sort of saying, oh, okay, now that makes sense. Now this makes sense. And the way that Alex Proyas designs it, and this is something that um, you know we'll get into a little bit when we talk about Roger Ebert. You'd mentioned his connection with the film. Um, cause he provides an audio commentary, um, on the, uh, on the Blu-ray that I have, I had a DVD and then obviously now a Blu-ray, he provides an audio commentary, um, where he talks about how Alex Proyas is almost like Stanley Kubrick in a way, in that he really is meticulous and he, he designs these movies in a, in a very, um, uh, specific manner, you know, giving you shots that he didn't have to give you, but yet he put the effort into to um, uh, I guess to make them part of the film that uh, helps to explain things as it's going along. I absolutely love it. And that's one of the things I really uh, enjoyed about dark city is just learning along with Murdoch, with the main character of what's going on in a world that's, 
not just a little strange. I mean, this is like just off the wall bizarre. Yeah, yeah, totally, it totally is. And the other thing I think we can say about it is the movie doesn't slow down. It doesn't. It it's not like the first thirty minutes are sort of hectic and 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 crazed, and then you kind of slow down. It's that way, basically building all the way until the end, and then the we don't get into like any kind of spoilers here, but you know, for me, the moment of tranquility is maybe the most ominous moment in the movie, <laughs> you know, because we've been going so, so intensely right. for so long for basically the 90 some minutes mm-hmm. that the movie runs or 110 minutes uh, that the movie runs. Uh, Bill, how about you? Because this was your, like, just like with 2001, this was your first time for seeing the movie. Yeah. You're popping my, uh, my sci-fi cherry on a lot of these films here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was interesting because I had literally never heard of the film till two weeks ago, uh, because it was kind of in a time in my life where, you know, was, I was either seeing silly comedies, I was watching hardcore horrors, or I was just watching, uh, you know, whatever kind of came up. So this really didn't hit my radar. Um, I do remember seeing The Matrix in the theater, and that was about the same time Blade came out and that kind of thing. But I, I, this one passed me by, so I didn't know anything about this one. So it, it's it's not usually my bag, to be completely honest, this type of film. But I am glad that I watched it. I'm glad that I saw it. Um, I can really appreciate. The one thing I expected coming into this, 1998, I knew there'd be CGI and you know how you see like the Stendhal syndrome and the CGI doesn't really hold up. Well, I saw this and I thought, you know what? For the most part, it holds up pretty well. Uh, I know the budget was only something like $24 million or something. So they didn't have a ton. But in 1998, that was a fair chunk of change. And for the most part, it holds up pretty well. For a 23-year-old film or whatever it is, it doesn't do too badly. Now, I know that you've uh, talked about the aspect of the film noir, and, and no, you're not going to think this is the Manchurian Candidate or anything like that, you know. But it does have that cloak and dagger aspect to it, you know. And there's a couple chase scenes. There's people going through alleys on rooftops and things like that. I, it almost, with the sci-fi element, I got a little bit of a total, uh, total recall aspect to parts of it. And a little bit of Hellraiser. And there's this underground, dark, people look funny kind of thing. And I'm going to throw, I got a little bit of Darkman. I have a soft spot in my heart for that movie. <laughs> Me too. And, there, and there's a little bit of that, you know, under cloak and dagger and always in the dark and in the bowels of some, you know, whatever. So I got a bit of that out of this. At the end of the day, would it be one that I go to every time? No. But is it one that I will revisit? Absolutely. Cool, and that's that's awesome. I'm glad to I'm glad to hear that. And I think you mentioned like Dark Man and and like uh, Philip K. Dick with Total Recall. And it's interesting because as we start to discuss the plot of this, I think that this really reminded me very closely of a Philip K. Dick story called the uh, the Adjustment Bureau. Now that was later made into a movie with Matt Damon, and the movie the but Dark City is much closer to the original story than the Matt the Matt Damon movie, which I actually thought was a decent movie is to to the story itself they expanded a lot but it i i suspect that alex Preuss probably did read the adjustment bureau before he made this but it the whole movie does have a sort of philip k dick feel to it with this idea of is reality what we see in front of us and not only is it what we see in front of us but does it make us who we are does it drive our decisions and our are we driven by some internal soul or are we driven by 
everything around us that makes us who we are. And I think those elements of the movie actually do end up coming to the forefront underneath all the special effects. I mean, that's kind of how I feel about it. That maybe not upon the first watch. My first watch was similar to what all of you said. I was just struck by how strongly it looked visually. But um, a question I have, I mean, we'll start with, with Jay. When you were watching this, and we kind of talk about this story because the story does start with John. He's on the run. And it's not that long before we do see these sci-fi elements come into play, specifically with the fact that, yet yeah, daylight never seems to come. And at the moment when John is expecting it to turn to day, something really crazy happens in the sense that the entire city just shuts down. It grinds to a halt. And then we see these characters that were called the strangers. They emerge and they start moving people and things around. Uh, they are readjusting everything he's seeing. It's almost like he is in a diorama and people are moving around. When that element of the story kicks in, uh, just want to get you guys' thoughts on that. Like, So story-wise, now that we have this going on and we start to figure out that these strangers are they're separate from all the rest of the citizens of Dark City and they have an agenda how did that start to play in as you're watching the movie how did that start to change your perception of the movie what do you think about those scenes for me that was when the movie just sort of took off and visually what was happening there kind of became very uh very overwhelming and it really brings you into the mystery when you see these cities actually moving up and down and buildings changing and and things like that well i think uh this is this is a film that's built upon its mysteries and it's built upon its questions. Like um, I could totally see why Alex Proyas did not want to have that narration. I mean, the, the story is the studio felt like they needed to have like a, a voiceover narration track to help people understand what's going on. But honestly, the fun of this, which is, you know, the way it was intended to be is the director's cut. Like Dave was talking about, that's the one you want to get. Um, you, you, it opens in this situation, as you said, like in the middle of just some craziness. And we assume that this is our character. In fact, right off the bat, he saves saves the cat, so to speak, by saving a goldfish. <laughs> and, yes. and we know that he's a, a, a tender-hearted good guy just on some level. And then we learn that he's special even further by seeing... Um, Everything shut down except for him. So there's already the assumption that, okay, this is the guy we're following. He's our, our protagonist. But then everybody else shuts down, but he doesn't. So there's something peculiar about him. And uh, so it, it just, when that happened for me, the first time I saw this, it, it just really intrigued me further and got my uh, curiosity peaked. Yeah, and, and then... He also had. You also see him. His first interaction with the strangers. He even has something else that he seems to be able to do that sets him even further apart. And so you're right. I Bill had mentioned, and it's really hard to escape this connection. Is you know a year later than this, The Matrix comes out. But I did see this movie first, and there are definitely some some obvious similarities between the two. But up to this point, like you said, Jay, you have this. We're following a person. And we are finding out that it's not just the situation that they're in is remarkable. They are further remarkable outside of the situation. And so it does have very much, I think, a people are always at tell, tell them, trying to sell me on new comic book movies. And I don't dislike comic book movies, but they all are starting to sort of feel us of the same piece. And so when people ask me about favorite comic book movies, if I had to pick one, I know this isn't technically a comic book, but it really feels the closest I think I've ever had to 
the way the shots are, the length of the shots, and how how specific each shot is, both in its production design and in its cinematic composition, it feels like you're reading a graphic novel as it's playing out in front of you. Just the way it moves your eyes through the frames, the way it captures the characters, the way it tries to sketch characters quickly when Jennifer Connelly is introduced to us as this torch singer. And I noticed that in the actual film, or in the, the theatrical cut, they used the voice of the singer who sang the songs, and they used Jennifer Connelly's voice in the movie. Uh, and I just noticed that for the first time, and the director's goes like, oh, it's actually her voice now, which adds a little bit something there. You sketch these characters out very quickly. They're not defined by a lot of dialogue. The interactions between John and his wife and this whole backstory that they are having marital issues and that there's this possibility that John has become, uh, you know, that maybe he is this killer of women in the streets. These things are all kind of sketched out very quickly. We over over the time running time of the film, they become characters that we know. But none of that stuff is really uh, given to us through a lot of like really heartfelt acting. It's not that the acting is bad, but it's pitched at a different level. I always think it's impressive because this really is a visual special effects movie. But it uses all of those things to an end. So to me, it's kind of the ultimate comic book movie. It has the superheroes and it has the the crazy settings and it has this the hero's origin story and the and the the hero's journey. And but I, I like that it's condensed in the in the mystery. I'm not sitting here watching all the normal beats I'd expect from a superhero movie, if that makes sense. <laughs> it, it, yeah, Nathan. It reminds me of if Dick Tracy, that film, and um The Watchmen had a a, you know a baby <laughs> this, yeah that's about this right. film would be would be that to me <laughs> but yeah there's a there's also an interesting artificiality to it that i think's intentional and the casting of william hurt was a, a very uh wise stroke because he he can sometimes i mean he's a fantastic actor don't get me wrong but sometimes i don't know if it's because of his uh, you know stage training or whatever he he does sometimes feel a little stiff or wooden. And I only say that because I think he was his inspector character here. Bumstead. I think it's a hundred percent intentional that he's a little bit of the cliched hard boiled detective, but slightly wooden because there's an artificiality to um, everything we're seeing even. And it's not even a matter of, I mean, we talked about the, the artistic design, but even, and I won't get into spoilers, but, even the artistic uh, look of the city, you sense uh, a degree of artificiality and you're not even thinking. I mean, I knew as a viewer, okay, this looks artificial, but it's not because the effects are bad because they're actually fantastic. This artificiality is intentional. Yeah, and it, you, it, right, it, and it's there, but you're not quite sure how much is it going to play in <laughs> into the story. Uh, Dave and I talked about this with the the aspect of William Hurt when we were talking, I think the mind trippy movies were talking altered states. And I think we had mentioned something too, Jay, we were talking about uh, William Hurt. He shows up in the village as well. Mm. There's a certain quality to him that is what you're saying. It's a similar, I don't want to say it's exactly the same, but it's something that Keanu Reeves sort of has too, where a a quick pass could say that guy is really wooden or that acting is too (laughs) affected or something. And, and maybe sometimes with Reeves, it could be true, but they end up, there's something about it, though, that works a lot of times. And they specifically works for a certain kind of movie. It's probably not a surprise or a coincidence that Keanu Reeves really worked well in The Matrix. 
and William Hurt works very well in this movie and in Altered States and in Until the End of the World, which I just recently saw, and, and similar science fiction movies in The Village, he has a certain, he has a grounded sense to him in one way where he feels like a down-to-earth guy, but then there's something that lends itself well to putting him in these kind of fantastical structures, and it just sort of works. Um and, and I, I feel like that's happening here, but you're right. We can talk about that a little bit more. Even the things he says, you know, like uh, he makes all these statements and some of them sound like exactly like something a hard-boiled detective would say. And other <laughs> things sound like something that a nine-year-old kid who just watched the Maltese Falcon and was writing his own comic strip would write, you know? So it's mm-hmm. almost, and that's almost intentional. Like, and what is an innocence view of a hard-boiled character? What would that look like? But, but I found he, he got a bit of humanity when... Uh, the when Rufus, what's his name, uh, Sewell asked him, he goes, but do you remember what it was like to have the son? And he goes, you know, I think I do, but he couldn't specify anything. So I thought that scene kind of humanized him a bit more than this hard-boiled, you know, detective. Yeah, and, and as, as a character, it's funny because even yeah. his name, Bumstead. You know, you you kind of get a you kind of get the feeling he's just sort of this lump, um, but a lot of what his character it's funny because when you look at where the movie starts, it starts with a a sort of murder mystery, um, along with the the science fiction elements sort of coming in uh, occasionally, but you get this murder mystery. You you get this this character who's who's you know they they consider him sort of. Uh, a suspect in the murder of these six, uh, you know, uh, you know, prostitutes. Uh, almost like it's almost like a Jack the Ripper type thing going on here at the very beginning. Um, in a way, that's kind of the MacGuffin of this, you know, as as, as which, which Hitchcock would use. You know, it, it's sort of a, a misdirection where you think the story is going in one way, but in reality, it's something completely different that's happening here. And William Hurt is tied up in the part of the movie that is the, the misdirection the, the you know, with, with the murder mystery, he's the detective, he's looking into it. Even his uh, associate. And I, I can't remember the name of the character right now. Um, or the, the actor who played him. Bank. Um, he, he has this guy who was hustle bank. I think is what his, was it? Is the, the side, the sidekick guy who's always taking his notes for him. Oh no, Hasselbeck! Oh. But but I mean his 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 um his um the, the guy who, who oh, was in the room uh, drawing the spirals. His predecessor, yeah. Walensky, yeah. Walensky, who has figured it out. He's actually done. You know, you, you're kind of looking at him as a little bit crazy, but Walensky knows what's going on. He's in touch with this world, and you get that when William Hurt says, "Hey, look, you're scaring your wife." Here, he's like, "That's not my wife." You know, she, she's not my wife. What are you talking about? And he, this guy, Walensky, has figured everything out. And yet it, the William Hurt character is always a step behind. He's the detective. In most film noirs, the, the, those type of characters, you know, like Humphrey Bogart and the Maltese Falcon and everything, they're a step ahead. They're a step ahead of everybody. William Hurt's character is a step <laughs> behind everybody in this movie. Even even Walensky, who, who was the guy who was taken off the case because he was considered too crazy. He knows what's going on. And he's just not quite up to speed with everyone. And then when he finally is, is that awesome shot late in the movie. And I don't want to get too deep into it, but where, where he's basically William Hurt's last scene in the film is when you get the feeling like, okay, now he knows what, now he's finally up to speed with, with what's going on here. And I love that. I love that, 
that's one of my favorite scenes in the movie is is that um that sort of the, the William Hurt's final moment in the film. Yeah, it's that that's very cool. And I'm trying to it, it's hard to talk about this movie at a lot really when you get to a certain point without going into the spoilers. And so I'm trying to think of other things that we can discuss in terms of the movie before we kind of launch into the spoilers because I this whole slate of characters that embody the strangers, you know, and we want to talk about, you know, um, all of, all of those characters and those actors. And yet it's hard to really talk about them without getting into kind of where the movie goes. And so, and and I, but I do agree with what Jay had said earlier, which is this movie is based upon, it is built upon its mysteries. It works best when they sort of unspoil in front of you. So I think, the, the the bottom line here is this is a very visually driven movie and yet i don't think its visuals are just it, it's not a bunch of special effects artists just trying to throw things at the screen and see how much we can put on the screen it seems they're all directed to a very specific vision they're trying to create a world and a mind space and a feeling and i think what's interesting we started to hint at here is that the characters are two levels of character there's the caricature that they seem to be, and there's the person who's trying to fight against that character underneath. You know, we've talked about how Bill mentions William Hurt starts to become more human when he starts to ask questions. When he starts to ask, stop asking questions that are detective questions and are more human questions. Why am I here? When was the last time I saw the sun? You know, questions that maybe he's not, that are his own thoughts. And so without saying any more of that, I'd maybe... At this point, I think for anyone who wants to, who's heard this and says, hey, this is this is a movie I want to see, this would probably be a point, I would think, and I'll let you guys say any kind of final thoughts on it there, to maybe turn it off and and go see it and then come back. Um, so any other final initial thoughts about just the movie as a in a general review sense? And if you guys want to give ratings... Uh, for me, it's a ten out of ten. But um, any any ratings or final thoughts you want to give just about the movie? My thought of, of it is this: Why was this considered rated R? Why is this a restricted movie? What was there in it that would have put it over that line? Nudity and violence. Although I would say that they're not. You know, there's probably just about enough. Um, there were a lot of movies in this '90s time period that got an R rating that were probably. Um, they were very sensitive to the violence element that happened too with the matrix later, a year later with like a lot of that violence is primarily there because of the concern over it. You know, just violence was something that was very touchy over here in terms of like ratings. Like other than the fact, I was going to say, other than the fact yeah, you see I, a dead hooker on the ground every now and again, you it's see like, a live hooker too at one point. Yeah, mm-hmm. you, you see a live and yeah. It's funny because um, uh, I always go back to 1981's uh, or uh, Clash of the Titans. There's just as much nudity in Clash of the Titans as Mm -hmm. there is in Dark City. And Clash of the Titans was rated PG. I always thought that was very interesting. I remember I saw that in the big screen. And, you know, being a, being a, what was I, was uh, 11 years old when I saw Clash of the Titans and to to see that sort of like a a very explicit nudity (laughs) in a PG movie. (laughs) Uh, it, it's, it's just sort of, uh, it's jarring in a way. Um, and, and, and I, it's fun because that's the same type of nudity again, but it's the violence. You're absolutely right, Nathan. It's the violence in the film that I think would get it the R rating. Um, and it's not really the type of movie that you could take a, uh, a younger viewer to, cause they're not going to really be able to, uh, understand it. There's a, there's a lot going on. There are themes going on here as well. 
uh, I think that would be a little bit beyond. It would be, but uh, I mean, you could watch Kramer versus Kramer, and there's themes that would be a bond to an eight year old, but there's nothing you can't show them, you know? Like, I'd agree, Bill. That true. It's a, it is that's, an almost true, movie, yeah. you know, in that sense where it, there's you could you could cut one or two little things here and have a movie that would be a a very solid like PG thirteen movie. And there are elements of this movie that I'm like, oh, I can't wait to show my kids, but I'm not going to show my kids Dark City just yet, you know. Yeah. Um, they they got to at least be nine. I'm just kidding. But uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> but uh, but uh, anyway, the um. I, so I think that that was it on that end. But any thoughts, any kind of, not final, but just in terms of someone who maybe information would be good for someone to know before walking mm-hmm. into it or, or to encourage them to, to, to watch it at all? Yeah, Nathan, I, I'm i infamous for overselling things and I don't want to overstate it. But uh, this is the <laughs> this is truly, genuinely my, my feeling on this film. You know how if you've ever put together a time capsule and you're trying to figure out, okay, what would be representative? What would be, what would show or, or you know, really capture this period? I think that if you were doing a, a time capsule, I'm not saying this is in my top 10 all-time favorite films, but if you did a time capsule to represent what kind of artistic and um, just what film art could be, a high example of, of film art, I think that this would be one of 10 films that should be preserved that way. Um, I, I do I do think it's a 10 out of 10 just for those who are um, listening and who haven't seen it. I think it's a must-see if you're a cinephile. It's a definite purchase. In fact, I own the DVD version, and it's the director's cut, of course, and that's the one you want because it has the Ebert commentary that we've been referencing. But t- today, after watching it again, I'm like, you know what? I got to have this on Blu-ray and I ordered it on Blu-ray as well just to make sure I have it. So it's a science fiction masterpiece and I don't use that lightly. So I just I hope people who are listening to this will give it a chance because I think it's an important example of what we could do with film. Yes. And if I'm not mistaken, I think it's. I think on Amazon, I think they're selling it a Blu-ray for like ten dollars or something. I don't think it's it's an expensive purchase. So definitely worth ten bucks. Mm hmm. That's great. And you know what? It's funny because you learn something new every uh, every episode. I learned that Jay finally got a Blu-ray player. <laughs> <laughs> that, and, that's awesome. And, uh, I mean, because when I was out there in 2017, Jay, I remember I gave you um, – I had given you a, a, a copy of uh, – what was that? Oh, oh the um, – Oh God! The it, 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 the autopsy the autopsy of, of Jane Doe on Blu-ray, Doe, but it yes. had a DVD version in there. And you're like, oh, thank you! I it's got a DVD. I can I can watch this. That's great because you <laughs> you had not upgraded to a Blu-ray player then yet. And I was I I, I all this time I didn't know you had uh, you had uh, made the plunge. That's awesome. Here's a, did here's he just pull the DVD out in front of you and throw the Blu-ray in the trash? <laughs> right. Thank you, Dave. <laughs> Tuck it in his pocket. <laughs> here's what. No, no, no. Uh, my friend Carl Huddleston. It was about to lose his mind, and he actually bought me a Blu-ray player. Oh, okay. So I have one now. Yes. So he could get you a little bit closer to, to 4K. That's right. That's right. That's great. As far as as far as me with, with, with the film, yeah, I, I'd have to come, uh, you know, I'd have to say it's definitely a, a 9.5 to a 10 uh, for me as well. I mean, I've, I've watched it now probably seven, eight times. And it, 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 it still has the same effect on me each time I, I see the movie, just the sort of awe of this world that it creates 
and the way that it handles it and the questions that it asks. I mean, that there's that great scene with, with, um, uh, you know, uh, John Murdoch in the, in the cab, he's talking to the cabbie and he asked him, a, you know, about, um, uh, what was the name of that? Uh, the, the vacation spot. I can't remember the name of Shell it. Beach. Yeah, Shell Beach. Shell Beach. He's like, Oh, you, you've been so sure. I had my honeymoon there. How do you get there? Well, you go to main street and you hang a, well, no, wait, is that right? How do you, how do you, like, nobody remembers being there. Nobody. And it's like, Bill was saying, nobody remembers the sun. Nobody remembers anything, but yet the memories are in there. And that's where you start to get between the, you know, the, the reality of, of this world and the perceptions and what these strangers are doing to these people, these tests. Um, and it's funny how the matrix came up because I, I had posted, I reviewed this on my blog back in 2011 and the sole comment on there was from somebody who said that they saw, went and saw the matrix in 99 and walked out saying, boy, that was like dark city, wasn't it? You know, because you, you have that, that, um, you have these, these, these sort of, uh, I guess, uh, ominous figures who have created an artificial world and, uh, sort of watching, uh, what mankind is doing in this world. And, and there's, they're chasing the main protagonist and the main protagonist might be the one who is going to save humanity. And you get that in this film. And it, it's, it's just interesting how dark city predates the matrix. The matrix is so much more, uh, front and center. I think in, in, in pop culture and just, uh, just, uh, you know, cinema fans in general, but dark city does have a lot of those same elements to it. And I think it does it in, in equally as interesting way. I love the matrix too. I really do. I'm a big fan of the first matrix uh, and I try to pretend the other two don't exist uh, <laughs> because I absolutely love the first matrix. Uh, but this movie does have a lot in common with that first matrix, almost as if it was setting the stage for it. And Ebert mentions, uh, uh, you know, something in in uh, in his commentary about how this, you know, the Dark City could become a cult uh, a cult favorite at some point, and it just never really did. I don't think it ever got to that level, and uh, it's a shame because I think it really deserved to be. Mm-hmm. I, I know I'm going to get tarred and feathered for this because you know that's just who I am, but. I, I, I take this from the point of view of somebody who grew up not being a sci-fi guy. And like the last Star Wars movie I saw in the theaters had Ewoks in it. And so you take it from that, that point of view. And so it, it's only been in the last 10 years or so that I've kind of re-gravitated back to that. And when I have started doing uh, Phantom Galaxy and when I was on Land of the Creeps, I've started having to go back and watch these and you gain a new appreciation from them with a second perspective. Uh, it's almost a fresh look because th- I, I had never heard of this one. I had shut this kind of film out other than like the big major blockbusters from my even consideration of watching. So I'm going to give this one between a seven and a half to an eight because it's not my go-to film, but it's th- so well done. And people who are listening going, you know, Bill's a hardcore horror guy. He's not going to... You know, for a third, for a twenty-two-year-old film, the CGI holds up fairly well. Uh, the acting is really good, and you can almost take this as a police serial, and forget about the sci-fi stuff and still get something out of it. Because ultimately, it's about clues and figuring out how it all happens. So I'd say definitely watch it. It's a it's a turn the lights out film, 
Uh, it's one where they don't speed spoon feed you any answers. So don't bother trying to take any notes because they'll be all over the place. Just turn it on and watch and enjoy. Well, in your reticence, you said, Bill, towards science fiction. To me, that's why you're here, Bill. And that's my my goal is to change you. Uh, (laughs) I will will change you to that when you can sit and watch American guinea pig sacrifice. Nah, back off. Uh, Don't don't do it, Nathan. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Not worth that That, change. That that movie is repugnant. Well, but the thing with Bill, though, is you don't really, you don't have to convince him to watch these movies. You just name a movie and Bill and goes and watches it. I'll find it. Thing. Bill okay. is very open-minded about right. that. So. I, I, I'm very much like Mikey likes it. Michael will try it. You know? <laughs> so, um, yeah, and I, I agree with you about the special effects. And honestly, the special effects that don't look that great didn't look that great in 98 either. So the couple of special effects are a little like... Uh, they were they were about the same back then too, but I think a lot of stuff of the building still looks awesome. It's a yeah, it's a ten out of ten for me. I um, but I get where you're you're coming from, Bill, and also having like just seen it, it is a movie. I think we could probably all agree it's a movie that does kind of in, entice you to want to see it again, maybe not immediately. And I think it does grow. It's that's the I, movies I love the most are the movies that kind of grow when you see them a second time. Uh, to me. When you see a movie once and it kind of gives you everything you need right off the bat, that's a great experience. But then I I feel like there's not much reason to come back. Movies like this, they kind of keep drawing me back in. And I like and I get more from them when I come back. And I like that. So let's so now now we can have the real podcast, right? (laughs) (laughs) I got a free for all to set. I'm kind of a little bit up to you guys and really whatever you want to talk about at this point, I think we can talk about spoilers um i think there's a lot to talk about in regards to the characters even though some of them seem like caricatures and i think we can talk about the twist too at this point uh, is there any specific aspect that you guys really you know um, with the opportunity to talk about this that you want to talk about or really delve into i was gonna say as the guy kind of on the outside looking in the one aspect i really liked one was Kiefer sutherland was in incredibly strong in this i thought his acting was phenomenal in this Mm -hmm. and i like the aspect of the brainwashing it really brought that uh, invasion of the body snatchers element to it and that is my all-time favorite sci-fi movie i really like that aspect to this film Mm -hmm. yep i I, i'm I'm going to concur with uh keeper sutherland i mean uh Having grown up with Kiefer Sutherland in movies like Stand By Me and The Lost Boys, where he's playing a very different sort of character than he is in this one, um, I loved his performance in this. He might, his is probably my favorite performance in the film. Uh, just from uh, th- this character, this this guy who's uh, you know sort of working in the shadows, and he's he's subservient to the uh, to the these creatures these these other beings who are who are controlling everything he's like the rufus sewell character in that he's not falling asleep with everyone but he has a specific function you know he's the one who's who's implanting um uh, and again we're getting into spoilers here he's implanting the memories and and changing people and and there's that great scene where he's putting together something a little bit of of teenage rebellion we'll throw that in there and oh mm-hmm. a, a tragic death in the family we'll throw that in there and as he's coming up with the memories that he's going to implant into these people and 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 another scene along with the one with William Hurt that I always loved is that where where you see where it finally shuts down at midnight and you got this young 
couple of not young couple. You got this couple sitting at a table, obviously in a, in a, in a, in a, in this sort of ramshackle apartment. Um, and they're talking about, you know, just something. I don't even remember exactly what they're discussing. And then all of a sudden their the, the apartment widens and, and now they're living in luxury and they're having a very different sort of conversation as soon as it hits midnight. And it's at that point where you're saying, wow, this movie is just so, so unique and so unusual. And I love where they went with that. And it's really the Kiefer Sutherland character that's the tie for all of those things. He's involved mm-hmm. in all of the worlds at the same time. Um, and yet a little bit weaselly and sort of just sort of serving these other characters and working yeah. behind their back, trying to build something and, and change the way that things are, are, are going on. His, his, it's, it's an awesome performance and um, just a, a really strong character as well. What I think so cool about that, Dave, and about that Kiefer Sutherland character is the strangers have a lot of vampiric type qualities. I mean, even though they are um, aliens, because we're in spoilers, right, Nathan? Yes, we are. I I like where you're going. Keep going. Okay, so even though we're in, uh, you know, like even though they are aliens, technically, they're vampiric. They like the darkness. Um, They, you know, they're very pale skinned. And I love how Kiefer Sutherland's character is kind of like the Renfield, yes. the little the little crony yes. <laughs> that helps facilitate this. And and that's really neat. And the other thing that's impressive about uh, Freeber is that, uh, of course, as Kiefer Sutherland does, he, he almost accomplishes everything within 24 hours. <laughs> <laughs> right, Just right. Kidding. A little bit of foreshadowing there. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> No, I love the Renfield comparison because there is so much of that universal sort of feel like to to like even Schreiber's like facility. Like when you go into his office and he's got that big maze with all the rats running around in it. And and you're thinking, wait, this is his actual office. And people come to, you know, I take calls <laughs> here. You know, it's like, don't mind the giant maze with the rats. No big deal. But what's interesting about him and I, I like that, you know, that you guys all kind of singled him out. I do think he's probably the strongest uh, character in the movie and in, in, in the performance wise. And I think what's interesting is at that point in time, kind of like what you were um, intimating Davis, he was mostly the villain, you know, not completely, but up until that point, he was really the heavy in most movies. I think, you know, he like one of the movies he made right before this was that movie where I think Sally Field was trying to get him because he killed her daughter or something, you know, it was like, uh, right. He was a serial. He was always the killer. He was always the bad guy. Not in like Young Guns, maybe, but you know, for the most part, kind of keep their Sutherland. Later on in the '24 era, he was synonymous with the kind of square-jawed hero. But to me, in this time frame, he was the bad guy most of the time. And so then to have this character who's kind of initially sort of he seems like the bad guy. Then, as you pointed out, he seems almost like he's their henchman. He's their their servant he's the mad scientist and then in a sense really i mean he's the hero like he's the kind of under underscored hero i mean none of this would happen and you have this moment and i guess we can talk now you know the element of what's going on here is that the strangers are they're from another planet they are aliens and they've come they brought everybody from somewhere else and we can hold that for a minute but they brought them here to this place and this whole experiment is for the purpose 
of, and this is what I think is also interesting that maybe sets it for me apart from the Matrix, is in the Matrix, we're never quite sure what the machines are up to, right? The machines have, spoilers for the Matrix, I guess, but the machines have, <laughs> uh, they're the ones pulling the strings, and we're never entirely certain why. We don't know, is it benevolence that they're keeping them here? Or is it just that this is what we've decided to do with them? You know, you're never quite cer certain. They're, they're being used still the same. Here, the, the, the strangers are actually trying to survive. They're dying. And it's not just survival. They want an individuality. They're a hive mind. And they're studying humans to find out what makes them special. And so to me, that gives the strangers a little bit of, of sympathy and poignancy because they are actually trying to achieve something that isn't based upon necessarily harming the humans, even though what they're doing is sinister, uh, there, there's a real reasoning to it. And you kind of see that played out in the Richard O'Brien character in Mr. Hand and in Mr. Book and some of these other characters. We see that, but Schreiber's the one who's been kind of conscripted to do all this. You know, He's the one who's mixing the memories and he's putting things here and putting things there. And so this whole time he's been betraying the entire the entirety of the human race that he knows exists anyway, he's been, he's been doing this and he's been doing it on and on and on and again. And then finally he sees this guy who has an ability and it's like an opportunity for him to kind of break out from that. And I think the scene when that finally happens, when he, when he mixes that final vial, I thought that was a genius scene when you see sort of, he's injected himself into John's memories to sort of teach him what he needs to know. And suddenly you have that idea. Shreeber even says, none of us know what we would have been somewhere else, you know, in other lives. Right. None of us know that because we were, it was taken from us. And so in that scene, you see him, he's the teacher, he's the firefighter. He's the guy who rescues people. He's all of these things that he doesn't get to be in this world where he's the only one that knows what's happening. Yes, and and you're right. He he is the the hero because if it was not for him, we wouldn't have John Murdoch, you know, uh, superhero at the end of the movie. Those are the memories that are implanted in him. And again, this takes you right back to the Matrix. You know, you've got that scene where where uh, you know Carrie Ann Moss they're they're approaching the helicopter and they're like, "Well, do you know? Do you know how to fly it?" And then you know, like a download. Like, yep, now I do. <laughs> Um, you, that's the same thing here is that, is that in that little space of time, while John Murdoch is tied to that table, he goes from having the ability to be a hero to being a full fledged superhero, you know, and it's because of what, uh, Keanu, um, Keanu, uh, what, uh, Kiefer Sutherland's, uh, character has implanted in him. He's given him the memories, an entire lifetime of training in that needle. You know, in 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 that one in that uh, one split second injection, he now has all everything he needs to know to defeat these characters, and it, it's it's interesting to watch the aliens pick up on that, saying something's wrong, something's not right here. What's something's going on here? And then they sort of realize he gave them the wrong needle. He gave or he gave them a different needle than what they were expecting. And then you get that great showdown at the end between, I guess, it's Ian Richardson and. Um, uh, you know, Rufus Sewell, uh, just a great showdown. Uh, that that last scene is 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 amazing. And again, it's going back to what Bill was saying. Uh, you know, the effects in this film are they hold up. They really do. You know, there are sometimes when you get into the. It's funny when you get into the CGI, the era, era of CGI. You're like, okay, you've got errors. You've got okay in the in the mid the mid nineties. Yeah, by by the end of the nineties, you could tell that was a little fake. 
by the mid-2000s, you could tell the end of the 90s, yeah, that's a little bit fake. This one doesn't quite have that. I, You know, there are some scenes in it, and like you were saying, Nathan, the stuff that doesn't look good didn't look good when the movie originally came out, but yet it holds up. You know, it, it yep. really does. It holds up enough to the point that you can suspend the disbelief and be immersed in the world. I, I completely miss. I'm sorry, you guys. Forgive me. I, I honestly completely miss uh, any, for me, any effects that I, I was not impressed with. I mean, I th- to me, I thought some of the the things that looked artificial were intentionally so on some level, like almost like a, a, a clue. <laughs> but but honestly, I personally, I just didn't see anything that looked amiss there, to me. It was only two quick moments, and it's almost like superimposed okay. images that I remember. And that was it. I mean, it, and it's okay. very quick. It, it's very, very quick. The only effect, and, it, and like I felt that way then, and I think it's just, they're ones that I probably would have tightened up had I, you know, if you were someone going back to it, but I'm not a big fan of people messing with what they've done. Mm-hmm. It's the, the, the effect of what the strangers actually look like inside of those corpses, because we know that they animate corpses. So the couple sequences when we see the strangers outside of their shell when they see the little jellyfish, mm-hmm. particularly mm-hmm. the one towards the end, it looks like a big blossoming sunflower. Like, I think that that effect is beautiful in conception, but it just that one, when you look at it, it looks like a 90 CGI, you know, the teeth are just sort you know, it just, okay. It, but that's the only one. And I don't think it looks awful. We're not talking like the special effects from spawn or anything, you know, but when it's <laughs> like, it's, it's, it's not yeah. pandemic. Right. No, no, no. Bird but thing. I mean, I think the thing is to me, the visuals in all those other areas are so strong and such a nice mix of like, and again, let's, let's talk about the fact that this budget was only like, like I think Bill had said something. I don't know what it is, but like in the twenty-five million 20, or something. Twenty-seven million. Twenty-seven million. Wow. Now we'll take that and a movie that came out about subsequent to this, and I know it had a bunch of like production problems. Look at a movie like Sphere, which mm. came out, and Barry Levinson directed that movie. And that movie has like a huge, a much larger price tag on it, and those special effects are pretty dreary, you know. And there's a scene where they're attacked by a giant squid, and you don't know, you never see the squid. You just see people inside the building, yeah. and it's shaking, and they're going, "The squid is attacking us!" And you see a green blip, and I'm like, "I thought we passed <laughs> that." And and so twenty six <laughs> million dollars, and what they've achieved here again. Look at a movie like Spawn. I'm sure the price tag was much higher on that movie, and it looks it looks horrid. Right. And I think that sometimes what happens is the, the those effects get away from them, and I don't think they did here. The other thing, and this might. It kind of backs up, I think, what Jay's saying. It's and and what you're saying too, uh, Dave, is that the special effects are trying to do audacious things. You know, we're not talking about oh, you animated a a groundhog when you shouldn't have, like in you know Spielberg or something. But like, <laughs> it's you're the end battle. You're visioning as I guess as tenacious D was a mind bullets, right? I mean, they're like <laughs> firing these the telekinetic waves that are that are bending the reality around them and they're firing them out of the middle of their forehead at each other in these long sonic like uh, drills that's and then they're flying while they're doing it and the city is undoing itself around them while they're flying and they're also having a knife fight right. <laughs> at the same time <laughs> the, the fact that we aren't talking about how silly that looks is a testament and again on 26 million dollars that's a testament to how well it's done and more spoilers for the matrix the matrix in three movies ends up at the exact same place as dark city because what is the last battle of the matrix in the last matrix movie they fly up into the middle of the city while it's raining and coming apart around them and they have a fist fight 
while oh. flying. I, it's mm. the same thing. I watched it. I said, that's Dark City. Wow. And I got in 90 minutes what I failed to get in six hours. Uh, and that that was a thing. That, uh, just a real quick on The Matrix. As much as I love the first one, I saw. I didn't see the first Matrix in the theater. I saw it on, actually it got videotaped. When when video cassette when it came out and I, I I was I loved it I just remember watching it one night with my my wife and my brother and his wife and we were blown away it was amazing um, then I went and saw Matrix Reloaded in the theater and I thought it had moments and I said ah eh, it's a little bit of a disappointment yet I still went and saw Revolutions mm. uh, God I the, the Revolutions <laughs> is just I mean it doesn't even take place in the Matrix it takes place in that world that they were fighting to defend. And, and, and they, they were fighting to, to protect from the machines. And I'm looking and saying, this is what you're fighting to protect? This is the most bland, boring world I've ever seen. What the hell are you bothering for? Go back in the Matrix. If, if, if there was any commercial for jumping into the Matrix, it was the world that these people were living in in revolutions. Except that in the movie before that, it was implied that that is the Matrix. That it's just Russian nesting dolls or turtles. Yeah, on top right. Of oh, it's, it's Matrix is all the way up. Oh, and Matrix is all the way it's, down. It's, it's, it was it was definitely a, a an instance of of taking a mythology and turning it too over too many times, and it, it's a shame because uh, <laughs> it even even Quentin Tarantino he he originally um he, he was talking about all the movies he ranked uh, like I think it was his twenty favorite movies that were released uh, since nineteen ninety three when he started making movies or ninety two. I guess it was when he started making movies. He said the matrix was originally his number two film, but he couldn't look at it the same because of the sequels. It just ruined the mythology for him. And I think it did that for everybody. And it's really a shame. Um, and thank God there wasn't a dark city two or three, because we could be talking, having the mm -hmm. same conversation now about this film. Thank God it stopped when it did. Right. Well, you know, I'm sure they'll fix everything with a fourth matrix, right? That always does. It. Yeah. Right. 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 When, once they bring everybody back, they're far too old to do it. Let's bring them all back and put them back in the matrix. And yeah, let's see what, what, the, what the third but, matrix did do is it allowed Bruce Spence though, to capitalize on the fact he's in every major kind of sci-fi. He's in yes. road warrior. He was in this, he's in star Wars. He was in Lord of he the Rings. He was in Lord of the, the Rings. Yeah, of yeah. Yeah. And he was the, he was the train man in the third matrix movie. Wow! Uh, I, it, was it just me, or does every time you saw one of those guys, you looked for Doug Bradley in the background? Right? Yeah, you <laughs> totally. did. You absolutely. They they had that look. There's no doubt about it. Cenobites. Mm -hmm. Yeah, w w all these weird otherworldly characters come up. The first thing they're like is, "Where's the S and M shop? Like, how do we get there? <laughs> right. We need to get some. We need to get outfitted before we go do uh, our which, thing." Which means that the creepiest of them all was that little kid. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was. He's like licking his uh, his teeth, yes. and you're like, oh god, what? little ankle biter. <laughs> yes, yeah. But don't worry, don't worry. Jay can take him. Yes. So, oh, that's right. You know I can. Jay, Jay's not, Jay I wasn't can, afraid dude. of that kid. I want to. I want to. I want to go. And, I want to been in the same state with that damn kid. But Jay would be able to take him. <laughs> reminds me of those, it. Reminds me of those kids in the Brood. Yeah, mm. yeah, the mm -hmm. right Brood kind of deal. <laughs> so, so something Dave said a minute ago. I just want to agree with you dave i loved what you said there about how um you referenced it's a good thing they didn't try to like fix it or, or do sequels to this i love so much that here we have a unique world a unique vision and it is a standalone film it's just a crying shame as you guys said earlier that it didn't catch on as a cult classic so i'm grateful nathan that you wanted to highlight this film and you know get another review out there for it another voice a set of voices to champion it because it's definitely worthy 
Yeah, and I think that in the words talk, like when the when this 2008 director's cut came out, uh, Preuss started talking about making a sequel and stuff. And then I, you know, I think that Gods of Egypt killed any chances of that ever uh, happening. <laughs> um, okay, okay. Oh, this is where I get kicked off the podcast. <laughs> I know where you're going, and the only and the only reason I've seen Gods of Egypt is because of you. But we'll get to that. Go ahead and. Uh, oh, okay. I don't want to jump ahead if you were intending <laughs> no. to mention it later. No, no. Go ahead and talk or, about it. That's why I wasn't going to slag on. It. I mean, I know it was a bomb. That was what I was pointing out. Yes, yes. Uh, it seems that many people hate Gods of Egypt, but I am one of its few apologists, apparently. Because while it is no dark city by any means, it's almost like, have you ever had a fine meal? Like, like, let's say you, <laughs> let's say you go to a gourmet uh, cheeseburger place. And it's, uh, a, go- a gourmet cheeseburger <laughs> place. That's a very, that's a very interesting uh, analogy. Go ahead. Um, continue, please. No, they. You never had a gourmet cheeseburger? I'm serious. I've, no, I'm, I'm uh, I've, I've had cheeseburgers that I've enjoyed. I don't know if I've ever said, boy, the, who's the master chef who uh, slapped, <laughs> slapped this meat on the bun, you know? <laughs> well, you, what, what is that place called the the Wawa that you go yeah. for? Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, no, yeah. no master Whoa. chefs working at Wawa. I can tell you that. <laughs> well, you, 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 you said you it like it was some kind of tribal language. With that Wawa that you go to, <laughs> <laughs> like. There's like this gas station place where Dave goes for. I food. go there too. I'm aware of there. it. We have them here too yep. in Maryland, oh, okay. right below yep. him. Okay, okay. So, anyway, sorry. <laughs> uh, the, the gourmet. <laughs> so, if, if Dark City were, uh, let, let's just say a gourmet cheeseburger, like something that's really delicious, then it, it's almost like Alex Proyas was trying to make more of a, you know, a White Castle or some, something a little more, you know, uh, <laughs> Pedest- I don't want to say pedestrian. <laughs> yeah, a little more for the proletariat, let's say. A little <laughs> a little a little more accessible to the masses. It's like, okay, Dark City was too sophisticated for people. Let's make something a little bit brighter and shinier. But the thing is, there is so much artistic merit in Gods of Egypt. I just wish I, I don't know. I, and thank you by the way, Nathan, for at least checking it out. And people usually resent me further after they spent time watching it. <laughs> but but Dave, if you have you seen it, Dave? I have not. I have to be honest. I have not seen Gods of Egypt, so okay, I, I can't. Like I can't it, criticize or or or, uh, or, you know. I'm just glad you didn't name it your top horror movie that year. No. <laughs> <laughs> but Dave, I dare you. I dare you to watch it. You'll like it because you're Doctor Schlock. Okay, all right. <laughs> you, you and, it's, and it's probably on Tubi, Bill. So you're good too. Right. Hey. <laughs> But seriously, well, I heard you review it. I think on I want to say Movie Podcast Weekly, mm-hmm. and I was I was up in the air about saying it had been out for a bit at this point because I whatever episode <laughs> it was it had been out because it was what out the theater for like two weeks and then it was gone. <laughs> and right. I loved Troy so much, and I really loved knowing actually from a few years before that with uh, mm-hmm. with uh, Al, um, with um, Nicholas Nick Cage. Cage. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's a good one too. And so when I was seeing the trailer, I thought, oh, look at all these. It's got the Harryhausen kind of look, and then the reviews were so bad. I was like, I, I don't have the heart to just go and see this thing if it's going to be. And then Preuss had this weird thing where he started blaming all the critics that weekend, and I was like, I don't know what's going on. So we'll wait. And then I heard you review it, and everything you said about it made me think, I don't know that I'm going to go see this and think it's good, but he's given me enough reason to check it out. <laughs> and I, when I finally got it, I rented it and I watched it with my son, and it was the perfect 
it was the perfect venue to do this. And I, there's the, he runs into a lot of the problems that he probably was avoided here. And one of those is sometimes in that movie, there are special effects that are just almost too big for him to get his hands around. He has all mm-hmm. these ideas, all these ideas, all these creatures, these giant scarab beetles that they're riding around. I mean, if this had been a Harryhausen movie with Harryhausen taking all the time to, to create those things, people would love it. Uh, mm-hmm. Not a bad movie. It's fun in the same way a Harryhausen movie is fun. It has mm-hmm. all these competing ideas about, um, I, I can't hate it. Like there's a scene where you've got Jeffrey Rush is on a giant floating space barge with yes. his like his son, his sun scepter that he uses every once in a while to shoot this giant worm that is surrounding the earth. And every once in a while, when the worm goes to swallow the earth whole, he just shoots it with the sun scepter from his space barge. Yes. <laughs> yes. And he drags the sun across yes. the sky. I mean, that's totally badass. You got to agree. It's a fun. <laughs> <laughs> this is where I say something controversial. It's better than 300. Go watch it. Oh. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> But Thank no, you, but yes, you were the. You, you, I was like, okay, well, someone's found some merit with this, so let me go check it out. Um, <laughs> that hasn't worked out for every movie you've ever recommended, Jay. But uh, I'm with no. you on that one. <laughs> okay, thank you. I, I know you're referring to the corpse of Anna Fritz right now. Hey, I, I like that one. I know it's good stuff, right, Big Bill? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know it, brother. No, the the thing about most of your reviews, Jay, and and actually everybody here. That's why I appreciate you guys. When I hear your reviews, it's the same thing with Ebert. Ebert could review a movie, and whether he liked it or didn't like it, I got a pretty good idea if it was for me or not. And I had a pretty good idea where Anna Fritz stood with me after you reviewed it. <laughs> I, I do not believe you uh, misdirected any of us when you reviewed it. I'll say that no, much. That's good. That's really good. I'm glad so my anyway. da- I was going to say, I'm glad my daughter wasn't with me when I watched that one. Well, mm-hmm. that, yes, that's a whole separate discussion that we could probably have later, Bill. But... Uh, <laughs> Anyway, Dark City, one thing I do really want to talk about with this, when we get this final, before we get to the final reveal, what about the fact, because I feel like one of the things that does make this movie strong to me is this theme running under when we really see what they do with the story of these people are being mixed around all the time. Like when you really start to think about that, like in The Matrix, he's always, he's always been Neo, right? Or Neo's always been John Anderton the whole time that he's been in the Matrix. He's just this worker. They, This idea here is that these people may have seven or eight different people. You know, they might have been 10, 20, 30 different people before this, that they're being constantly switched around. And yet there's some kind of sense of feeling. We There's some element that John, actually his wife, you know, he there's some real feeling there between them. Where did that come from? You know, the movie sort of asks that question. If John has only been put through his paces this entire time since he's been on the city and his mind has been wiped, what makes him the person that he is? And then when Richard O'Brien's character injects himself with John's memories and he starts to go on this sort of journey, I think that could have maybe been more pronounced. But I think that's also interesting. He starts to he's going through the feelings of what John was supposed to feel. You know, we wanted to make him feel jealousy, but he's feeling this other thing. How did you guys feel about that? I thought that I felt that there was a love story that kind of started to work there between the two of the, uh, between John and his wife to an extent, like there's interactions between the two of them that I think are, are relatively poignant. You know, when we see Bumstead start to actually become a real detective and not just go through the paces, like, or Schreiber start to be the person he is. I think, I really like the way that works, and I kind of like what the movie is saying through that, this idea that 
you know, obviously, are we more than this collection of programming that we have? Um, how did you how did you feel that you know, worked? It, or it's very interesting you say that because it, it kind of reminded me in a way of um, what I consider a very not even a movie most people think of sci-fi right off the bat. It's Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Yes. Where mm-hmm. it's working opposite, where memories are being removed, but yet the ultimate message, and it's a spoiler for Eternal Sunshine of the Mind, the ultimate message of that movie is the heart wants what the heart wants. You know, that even with, you, you look at the um, Kirsten Dunst character, you know, and, and, her, and her relationship with, with her boss, the doctor, and what we learn about that as that movie goes on. And and Kate Winslet and and Jim Carrey's characters having their minds erased of of you know their their love affair that they had, and yet where they end up at the end of the movie, it's just that the heart wants what the heart wants, and you kind of get that from this is that you could change these people all you want, but there's still something underlying. There's something about their general makeup that's always going to remain, you know. And I liked that message in this one just as much as I liked it in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. I, I agree with that, Dave. I, I love your tie in there to that film because it seemed to me that these characters, wherever they were initially abducted from, because I got the sense that the aliens had somehow pulled them from somewhere, somewhere else right. is what they say in the film, right. um, that there was an initial uh, being, an initial identity that even though they don't really remember, it's still them at their core. And that made me wonder that if there's another line as well at first when i when i revisited it today and i heard this line i'm like okay is he is he patronizing her like sometimes husbands do to wives to <laughs> get them off their back or like you know like, <laughs> like like for example she's like she says something about love and she's like cuz you can't fake that and he's like no no you can't and i'm like okay he just doesn't want her to <laughs> bug him further but then, but, then I, but then I realized, no, no, no. Uh, maybe that is a point that Poyas is trying. Moment. Yeah, it was. I'm just really jaded in my mm-hmm. in my life. But but I think that is a point that that Proyos is trying to make that that love actually it, it it penetrates through and still exists on a level of truth that cannot be buried or erased. That is deep. Yep. Good guy. Well, and that's when he breaks the glass and reaches through to her. He, you know, they're separated by the glass at the police. Yes, and he uses his mind, and that's the one moment I think when he realizes that you know later he says, "Well, no, you don't know how I feel. You only know how I was supposed to feel." And I think that she's gotten through to John at that point that this is where they're all about the choices I make based off of the things that are happening in my soul. You know, they're looking for the human soul, and it's ultimately what undoes them in a sense. Mm-hmm. I was going to say the one thing I wanted to bring up before we kind of wrap it up or whatever is, I don't know about you guys, but I really like the musical numbers. I thought that Connolly looked sultry and bang on as the singer. And yeah. I thought the music was pretty good. I, I tell you the song she sings yeah. at the very, the very first one, I didn't realize it was this, this song either sway that song she sings. Yeah. That's D, Dean mm-hmm. Martin sang that, uh, or, or the version I remember of, of sway is Dean Martin's. And it was used in the movie, sexy beast, which I love yep. sexy beast. 
and they use that in there. And I remember watching it. And as I was watching it tonight, I had forgotten that. And I'm watching it going, oh, that's that's Sway. And I immediately thought of Sexy Beast as I was watching her sing it. But you're right, Bill. She does a good job with that. I, I like that. And then they sort of build it up as as this, again, this, this um, classic nightclub uh, singer, yeah. you know? And it fits into that film noir, I think, uh, aspect of the movie. And then later she does The Night Has a Thousand Eyes, I think. And then and then the other mm-hmm. songs in there, I remember getting the soundtrack. And I think Trevor Jones does the, the score, which is also strong. But the, the songs, there's Echo and the Bunny Man do, do a song in there. And there's a couple others. And it's a good soundtrack. It's, a, it is, it's almost like the movie itself in that the musical numbers are from all different eras and different sort of places. And so it has that sort of hodgepodge or patchwork feel as well like to the to the music absolutely agreed 100 percent. and nathan if i could um shift directions a little bit uh, and just ask you about something or comment i feel like there's a theme that's underlying here um it, it it's built in a couple of different levels like there's the conspiracy theory angle where what if they're actually right we dismiss them as crazy but see, we live the common person, you know, it makes me wonder if the common person lives these mundane, ordinary lives day in, day out. But what is actually happening in reality is being controlled by uh, the quote unquote 1%, right? The powers that be, and they're actually pulling the levers and making the switches in the world and affecting all of us little people, <laughs> so to speak, um, and we're not even aware of it. And then kind of like in the film Pleasantville or in the film um, Truman Show, where there there becomes this unrest, this unraveling, because someone cannot um, just just be kept from the truth for too long. And so I wondered if that was, that was a theme that was intended or not in this, but I, I definitely read that in the film. It's interesting, and I'm glad you mentioned that, Jay, because it was something, not that exact point, but something I had on my mind to mention it, that I think it ties into what you're saying and probably kind of answers it is Dark City comes out like in February of 98. Truman Show comes out in June of 98. The Pleasant Pleasantville comes out in like October of 1998. And then a year later, you have The Matrix, The 13th Floor, Existence, Open Your Eyes. And mm-hmm. all of these movies are about basically the same kind of thing, right? Like in all of those movies, it's about wait, the people in this world waking up to see that they, not only that the world is artificial, but that it has been con- it's been designed that way by someone who's trying to keep them down for mm-hmm. their own benefit. And it is totally, and that's a point in time when the X-Files was big, right? Like the late 90s. Yes. And of course we had, you know, now everything just exploded and we, you know, I get, we don't know what's conspiracy theories and what's real anymore. But, you know, <laughs> right. at, the, at this point in time, you know, we the, Wag the Dog was a movie that same year or 97, you know, that it had this kind of distrust of the government that was almost playing in a Dr. Strangelove sort of vibe. So I think at that moment, in that particularly there in the late 90s, we were having all of these stories that were specifically about waking up to see the world for what it was. And I remember a lot of my friends at the time who were like, you know, uh, coming from the Christian perspective, were like, oh, finally, Hollywood is... I'm like, these are not Christian movies. <laughs> I, get, I get where you're coming from. I see what you're latching onto, this idea of your eyes being awakened and you're realizing... You know, but or, could you could you not argue that 2010's Inception is the next step of this movie? 
I well, I think I I think Nolan. I don't know that he absolutely was, but I feel like he has probably been inspired by many of these movies. Uh, to me, yeah, Inception has a lot of Dark City in it, particularly visually. But I think uh, Memento, maybe even more so, has that. You know, if you look at the movie Memento, there's a lot of correlation to Dark City in a different sort of way. Mm. Well, I love in, I love in, Memento. In, Memento is a masterpiece, in my opinion. And building on what you said, Nathan, I mean, I think it's really interesting uh, how at the end, once, uh, you know, once our, our hero character, Sewell or whatever, once he has taken over and, and John wins, uh, immediately what he does is he starts manipulating the machine yes. and, and building the world the way he wants it. And there's this amazing uh, reaction shot. It's a look of almost disgust and disbelief on Schreiber's face and that's so incredible to me because it made me it reminded me on in some weird way of the film Star Trek Generations um, where there was that realm known as the Nexus where you you're in this happy realm it's like blissfully happy and basically the Nexus isn't real but it makes you perceive that you're getting everything you want and you're happy and and it's like okay if you if you think you're happy even if it's not true then isn't that still great, you know? And and so I wondered about that, and I wondered if the shrink, if Schreiber was, like, kind of disgusted that he immediately started building his own world the way he wanted it. And that's, that is a point, that was something I did want to talk about that end. I know we haven't gotten, like, kind of the, re the reveal of where the city is, but that moment of awe when he comes out and he just starts changing things after he's won, and but Schreiber asks, well, what are you going to do next? And you're right, that look on his face is almost, it's almost indecipherable a little bit it's like is it wonder at all what's he gonna do or is it that or is it a mix is it a mix of okay is this the new is this the new warlord you know is this uh in a month <laughs> right. is he gonna start building cages along the edge of cell beach i mean or build a wall between you know <laughs> what is he gonna do next um but i think that's kind of implicit in the ending like he has the powers of the of the of the gatekeepers at this point right and the mm -hmm. others don't is he going to be like Neo and teach everybody how to do these things? Does he even know how to do that? But what is the first thing he does? He builds the things. He, he says we're going to make some changes. And he builds the things that he wants to see. It's still potentially benign. But now you've got a guy walking around who can control that entire world. And my thought would be I don't want to see a Dark City sequel. But when they were talking about it, it's like, well, is John Murdoch the bad guy? I mean, maybe one percent. Yes, because <laughs> Rufy. Well, yeah, and he, but he says, "Oh, you know," and she comes up to him and says, "Where's Shell Beach? Oh, it's right down here." And he knows, and she doesn't, so he has the upper hand in this relationship too. You know, not unlike, you know, an, an Eternal Sunshine Spile is mine when Elijah Wood is, you know, he's he's using this information he's gathered to try to game on her. I'm not saying that's necessarily what he does, <laughs> but it reminded me of an ending. Uh, 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 Dave, you'll know this movie. Uh, Bella Labette, the and actually there's a lot of Jean Cocteau, I think, in some of what's in Alex Preuss's Dark City, but mm -hmm. the Beauty and the Beast, the old 1940s Beauty and the Beast yeah. movie, is interesting because it tells the same story that we're used to. And you know, at the end, um, Gaston dies, and then the beast is uh the beast turns into a human. But what's interesting in that movie uh is that the same actor plays the beast and also the prince and Gaston. So when when the beast turns back into Gaston or into the prince at the end, he looks just like Gaston. He looks like the bad guy. And they in a similarly way, they they walk off happily together into the sun or they fly off together and she's looking at him, but she has a look not unlike what you're talking about with Schreiber where it's like, "Wait, 
the hero, the, the happy ending is offset by the fact that you now look like the bad guy in a sense, maybe not <laughs> physically. Right. And I remember kind of tying that together. There's also a weird bit. I don't know if you guys are aware of this. Uh, Ebert had pointed out once. There's that scene when he finds her at the pier at the very end, right? He's now built Shell Beach and he comes there and she's standing at the edge of the pier. Now, we don't know if he put her there or how she got there, but that is apparently, and not apparently, it is, I think that is a, the final shot of three different Jennifer Connelly movies. It, well, what I definitely, um, oh God, what was the one from? Uh, Requiem, Requiem for a for Dream. Dream. That's the one I'm thinking. Yeah, definitely that and, one. And House of Sand and Fog. House of Sand and Fog. Oh, interesting. Yeah, there's another shot of her nice. on the pier, and it's like, it, apparently movies with, Jennifer Connelly, seen from the back in a distance, <laughs> are uh, maybe, I, that's, I maybe that's her best side. That's not what I meant, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but no, I think that's a good point because it never leaves that feeling. It's a finally the sun is out, but I feel like the movie is left with a sinister sort of like the darkness isn't necessarily gone. The, the artifice, the mm -hmm. artifice continues is basically yeah. what it's saying, you know, whereas the, the idea of the matrix was to break down the artifice and somehow get back to a semblance of reality. This movie is no, we're, we're just going to have a different um, alternate universe. You know, we're just, we're just going to have a different uh, artifice um, and it's going to be better because now the sun will be out. Um, but you still have one person sort of controlling everything. Whereas before you had, I guess, a committee. Um, you know, where, where they sort of move like a hive mind controlling this whole thing. Now you've got one guy controlling the whole thing. So yeah, it's, it's, it, it, it could have led you, it could, if you did do a dark city too, it could have been a very different film and John Murdoch could have been a very different character. If she breaks up with him and things could get bad. Yeah. Right. Well, I, I, I still submit guys. I think that ultimately while it seems like it is 97% a happy ending, I feel like that dark city thread, the dark thread still runs underlying. I think that's intentional for us to be concerned about yep. it. I really oh, do. Definitely. Yeah. And, uh, well, and, and even the visual aspect of when you look behind him, you see sunny beaches, but then the, he's not gotten rid of that city. It's still sitting there. And I guess we should talk about the other fact. One of the reasons that they really, well, they can't wake up from it is that they're on a giant spaceship floating around in space, you know, that whole entire city is just a giant circular ship, right? Yeah. And like, mm -hmm. so does Murk, is, can Murdoch fly it? Can they take it somewhere? Can they, what did you think? To me, that's one of the most, like those, that was such a grand moment when they're breaking through that wall, you know, they tear it down and it's suspenseful and then boom, it's space. And I, I don't, I, I would assume I should have been expecting that, but I'm not sure I was. I remember still being sort of in awe when you see, as you said, Dave Bumstead, he kind of floats outside of the ship right. and then you see from the air, it's the city and it's just out there floating. And does that make a lot of logical sense? Maybe it doesn't, but it's a really great image. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it, and it, it just sets you up like it. You know, before you, you've got kind of like, it's almost like you've got a hope that, okay, th this world, it's, you know, there's something strange going on here, but maybe they can get back to normal at some point. Now you realize there is no normal. I mean, this, this is the world. This is, this is where they are. And the fact that it, um, you know, resembles, you know, film noir or earth in the 1940s or whatever they're going for here is that, you know, they've, they've created that for it. And, and this is just, just, you know, it's, it's like a sense of hopelessness when you first see that it's wonder 
a sense of wonder of what you're what you're seeing there. That scene, with, like you said, with Bumstead, that's my favorite in the movie where he's floating out and you just see this large ship. But a sense of hopelessness as well that these people really are trapped. There's nothing they can do about this reality that's been created for them. Because wherever they happen to have been from initially, and you think it's Earth, that's what you're going to think. It's going to these are Earthlings that have been taken out there, but who knows? Maybe they're just they they these are these are beings from another planet, and they're they're using Earth's uh, culture to create this world. Who knows? Um, but there's that that feeling of like, wow, these these people are screwed. I mean, no matter what <laughs> happens, these people are screwed. Mm-hmm. Well, it's funny when I was watching this, I kind of did. I looked a little deeper, and I thought. Is this allegorical in terms of there is a group of people in this world pulling the strings underneath the surface of the, you know, the, you can get into all those kind of conspiracy theories mm-hmm. watching mm-hmm. this. You know, is there is there a, you know, that third eye that's overlooking us and it's pulling the strings of society very much the way these ones are? You start going, oh, God, I'm going down a rabbit hole I really shouldn't get into. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I do wonder when I watch this film if there are also some intended spiritual parallels like you know like there's for for those who believe in reincarnation you could see some reincarnation themes yep, yep. or those who believe in like the I, I don't know like um the 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 story of like you know those who lived you lived somewhere before you were born in heaven and then you were born on earth and this is a probationary state oh, and then if, if you, you if you look at the movie poster and the mm-hmm. way he's situated, it looks like Jesus Christ on the cross, mm-hmm. or or, yeah. or that or that image from Metropolis. I always think of that image yes. from Metropolis when I see him. Uh, right. you know, on the there. clock, yeah, on the, yeah, exactly, yeah, totally. But you definitely yes. have that element, and you, and again, the fact that they are kind of looking for the human soul, and I think what's happening with the O'Brien character is interesting. And there's that scene that they've extended in the, in the director's cut where he's talking to when he finally finds, uh, is it Emma? Emma is the Jennifer Connelly character's name, right? Mm-hmm. Like when he yeah. finds her uh, and he's t- in, in the original cut, he just talked about it. When I was a kid, I saw this like a boat or something and it was lit up like a birthday cake. He's, he's, he's reciting John's memories, but in the director's cut, he mentions that, oh, well, yes, you would want these feelings, good or bad, if they meant that they were yours, that you could have them only to yourself and you weren't sharing them with this collective mind. And you kind of get into that that look of what it is to be um, to set free from this, you know, from this hive and why this individual spirit is valuable, why it is important, why it is sacred. And that it's funny that the alien is sort of the one to see that, even though he can't quite comprehend it. Sure. Sure. (laughs) Bill's still thinking of Jennifer. Bill's still thinking of Jennifer Conley on the dock. (laughs) Probably. What were you saying, Jay? Yeah, I'm I'm always reluctant to talk over people, so I apologize about the way the the yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll edit that out and whatever Bill said. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that is cool. That is cool, though, Nathan. Because, um, yeah, you can tell that, and you're and you're referring to Mister Hand, Mr. right? Mister Hand, uh, yeah, Mr. Oh. yes, Mister Hand character. Yeah, it's cool that he he's almost trying. You can see that he's wrestling with it and trying to grasp it, and it's like almost he almost gets it. But you can also conclude that for whatever reason, probably because they're not human, there's just no way for that alien race 
to be able or a species to be able to grasp it. And it is that it's that love and compassion element that he's lacking. He doesn't quite wrap his head around that. Why wouldn't mm-hmm. you kill her after she did this to you? You know, uh, that idea of forgiveness that he just can't they can't comprehend them because they're always about cause and effect uh, in a logical manner without something interceding in between it. So I thought all of that was kind of neat. And it's you have to admit that it's impressive that the movie does this in 110 minutes, while it is also full of special effects fights and action and things are constantly happening. You know, there's a you get a lot for your money. You do in that in that uh, that package. Absolutely, you you absolutely do, and I think that's that's one of the great. It's what it's what great science fiction does is it gives you the thrill and it, it gives you the um uh the perspective and and the you know just uh, forces you to think. And I think when you look at the great science fiction movies of of all time, and and you get that from back to Metropolis and up to one we mentioned already, Blade Runner. Where you're just sort of you're, you're looking at they look at they take the human and they take the human element and they just sort of give you this they, they built put it into this grand world, um, this amazing world that they've created, but it all comes down to something that you could have done in a drama, you know, if 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 you really wanted to, if those were the themes we're exploring, but it it builds it out into this great world, and that's what I really love about about good science fiction, and and Dark City definitely fits the mold for that for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it gives us those images. One, and I guess we can kind of we can wrap this up. And I guess we can talk a little bit. If you guys have any thoughts about anything that you heard, uh, we talked about Ebert, and it, like we said, he loved the movie. It's got some interesting things to say on the commentary. I really recommend the commentary. But one mm-hmm. thing I remember him in his original review when I re- reading it, and there were two things he had mentioned. He, he, he quoted, and you might be able to quote this better than me, Jay. But he, he he was always quoting in many reviews, and I remember him doing it specifically in this one that that Werner Herzog had said something about that we kind of live in a world starved for new images that we want to see yes. new sights, and and that he almost appreciated Dark City just for doing that. If the movie had not had any kind of story or any of this thoughtfulness or this idea about the self and all these things we're talking about inside the film, that it still would have had a, a whole feast of visual images for you to see. Uh, and I think that's true. And he mentioned something too. He goes, it dawned on me while watching Dark City that about 90% of the other movies I've seen are just about people talking to each other. And <laughs> I think what you kind of touch on there, David, is interesting is that the science fiction movies, it's some of these movies like this, they find a way to tell a wholly dramatic story with all of the beats and all of the emotion and the drama we want, but in a way that that isn't the drama that we experience in normal life, right? Where we, you know, we talk through things. We don't shoot people with mind bullets, but sometimes right. it's fun to see people shot with mind bullets. Right, right. I think that for me, while I love the matrix and dark city, if you comes down to it, I'm more intrigued by the mind bullet fight than I am by the Kung Fu fight. Cause I've seen the Kung Fu fight many, many times. Right. So mm-hmm. I think that like, even though it was done exceptionally well. So I think that that's kind of, that's the dark city is trying to do things, even when it's not doing them a hundred percent perfectly, it's, it's being audacious enough to want to do them, to want to show you something new. And I think that was what I kind of took away something else. And coming off of the 2001 episode, Ebert had a comment in his updated review. I don't know if he says this in the, in the commentary, but Dave, he mentions that as we are zooming in on that hotel room where 
John Murdoch is. And it's basically close to the first shot of the movie after we see Schreiber for the first time. So after that scene in Dark City comes up, we zoom in and you see that big like circular window, right? And we're zooming into the the tower and the circular window. He pointed out that that almost looks like the face of Hal, of Hal. 9,000, oh, right? That if you yes. if you look at it, and I'm looking at it today, it's like, and he, now, I, was that intentional? I don't know, but he said that, it, and then when you think about Hal's entire plight and everything involving Hal and what Hal kind of seemingly, his, his all of his issues are not unlike the strangers in a lot of ways, you know? Right. And, and all of Hal's issues and foibles are the same foibles and the same comeuppance that happens. They're sort of, a, they, they have the same tragic flaw there. And so I thought that was just an interesting thing. I never thought about it, but he talked about how that kind of looks like Hal as you zoom it's, in closer uh, to it. That's very, that's really cool. And, and you know what it says? You make an interesting point there. I mean, you can go back to Mr. Spock in Star Trek and through to Hal and um, right through to the, the characters in this movie. You, it's, it's almost as like uh, some of the great things about science fiction are logic against emotion, you know, and, and trying to, uh, to have these, um, uh, cold emotionless characters try to understand emotions even into the next generation with data you know the character of data yeah. you've, you've got these you you've got um these beings that emotions are are a foreign concept to them and and they're they they have to deal with people and and try to understand them with spock it was more like he was above all of that but Data wanted to be part of that. These characters in this one, they that's what they're studying. That's what they want to learn. You get the feeling. They want to learn about that sort of humanity. Um, and with Hal, it was just that um, ultimately it was the humanity of these characters. And, and, and you know, it, it's, it's funny because he was almost like the, he was the flawed one in that film, whereas the, the, the human characters were a little more straightforward. It's like, yes, here's the logical thing to do. But there's always that conflict, that sort of duality of, of emotion and logic at, at, at play in, in a lot of great science fiction. And I think this movie, it, it plays here just as well. Well, and the one we keep referencing, Metropolis, at the very, you know, yeah. Metropolis just straight up, the head and the heart, you know, yes. you have to have the head and the heart come together at the end. Exactly. Yeah. And Nathan, I wanted to, if I could double back for a minute about, you were referring to them as uh, mind bullets. Uh, I just wanted to kind of give a little shout out. I think it's super cool that the way they ended up depicting something that would otherwise be invisible. I mean, they're fighting with like, you know, uh, this is what psychokinetic powers, like, you know what I mean? Theoretically, the, I assume, yeah. <laughs> yes, but the the wave that you see is very... Uh, just a great way to depict that. I mean, cause, yeah. cause I think a lesser film or like an older science fiction film would have sent like the rings, the literally the way a six year old would draw yeah, you, a you, picture, you, like you the, don't, yeah. the increasingly bigger rings. Right. You don't, you, <laughs> right, you didn't know, right. you didn't know if they were fighting or if it was Aquaman calling for help. It, it would have, yes. yeah, it would have been. <laughs> right. Right. And then, and here come the dolphins, exactly. here come the dolphins to help the super friends. And the other guy would have grabbed his head and just clutched his hands and screamed. (laughs) (laughs) One of my favorite aspects of this film is how this story is, as we've discussed, it's about humanity. It's about love. And yet, even though those things are actually, they have a bright and positive vibe to them, it still maintains this nightmarish quality throughout it feels like a nightmare. Like you, when you're watching this film, you feel like you're stuck in a bad dream. 
And I love that aspect, even though it does have some beautiful themes to it. Yeah. Yeah, and I believe it was Preuss who said that the 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 initial genesis for this movie, more than like anything he had read or seen, was he had, had used to have a dream as a kid that these people in little hats would come into his room and just move everything around. And so he would <laughs> the nightmare being that he would wake up and his room is no longer what he remembered it to be, and they would just do that to him over and over again. <laughs> and so wow. that sort of became the basis. But and another movie that I uh, give a shout out for, and it's on Prime now. I know Dave, I'm sure you've seen it. The City of Lost Children. Um, oh yeah, which is yes. another great movie that plays. It was earlier than this one by a couple of years, and it plays with a lot of the same ideas. I'd say it's maybe even a little more fantasy, but and it has a wonderful. You could, I guess, you could even say it's a Christmas movie, right? For about five minutes right. there at the beginning, <laughs> where you have this yeah. scene of, of the child having a nightmare. And have you seen the movie, uh, Jay? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. It's wild. Yeah, and in the opening scene, you know, he sees there and Santa Claus comes down the chimney and it's a wonderful, bright moment. And then, as you kind of point out, it's like suddenly things go wrong because there's another Santa and another Santa. And another, and soon Santa's drinking beer and in his house and the, the reindeers are pooping on the carpet and there's so many Santas he can't even move around. And they're, they're taking his stuff and suddenly it's a bad situation. <laughs> Nice. Yeah. It's <laughs> and awesome. so uh, I, I I like that. I like these films that sort of end up being they're willing to jump outside of reality and do something kind of crazy. Um, so we're just about done on time. Any final thoughts you guys have about Dark City? Yeah. Where did they get all this uh, dark material for all their outfits? Like whoever the uh, men's shop owner yeah, is in town, you know, Frederick has a, monop- has, has a monopoly of <laughs> of yeah. quite a few outfits to get going. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I just have a couple of ridiculous standalone statements, which is um, I, I loved I couldn't help but think of um, John Kramer with the uh, spiral shaped blood spirals on the yes, the murder yeah. victims, of course. Mm-hmm. So you got that. And then my my favorite kind of set was the automat. I love the look yes. of the automat. Yeah, I love that cool. it like just. Dist- <laughs> Super cool inside and outside. I, I like. And then both. his wallet is in one of those <laughs> containers. Yes, that's something that would yeah, happen that, to me. Here's your wallet. Right. <laughs> totally. I love. That's cool. And then I love how the strangers had a name that was like Mister, and then a noun. Just a, <laughs> Mister Book, Mister right. Hand, Mister Knight, Face. Love. I'm astounded that, we never met Mister Lamp. Honestly, uh, yes. Yeah. It's it's almost like Bra- right. Brick from Anchorman. I love Lamp. That's what I was thinking. I love yeah, I love Rug. <laughs> when they kept saying Mister Hand, I kept thinking of Fast Times. <laughs> right, right. Um, and then um, I. I Definitely, like with this, when I first saw this, I remember thinking, okay, this cityscape is kind of a blend between Tim Burton's Gotham City and maybe Blade Runner a little bit, too. I mean, it's so many blends in this. And then the last thing, I just, one final shout out. I know we've talked it to death, but the production design, art design, and set design, I looked up the art department on this thing, and it had somewhere around 150 people. And I looked up under other like comparable artistic films like Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, which I'm sure took a lot of, you know, production magic. And even La La Land, those usually have like 40 to 50 um, art staff working with them. And and Dark City had three times as many. And I just I, I can't celebrate that enough. Nice. Yeah. Yep. And I think that's that's kind of the thing you could see every little bit of 
Uh, You get the impression that at the top level, there were only a handful of people making the decisions. And then they gave, uh, there was a lot of latitude to do cool little things, which as Eber points out, there's little details that don't need to be there. And Mm -hmm. um, I also like, we didn't mention it all, but I kind of like, you know, that, that Neptune's den place that he goes to when he meets his uncle Carl or, or the guy who he thinks is uncle Carl. Yeah. We didn't talk much about that scene, but uh, and that, that actor, I don't know, John Blumenthal or whoever that actor is uh, that he's been in a couple of different movies like that. That same year he was in the, he was in the fifth element. He was the guy at the beginning, the, uh, the professor in the, in the pyramid who keeps screaming Aziz light, you know, when he wants the, <laughs> wants the kid to hold the, the light up at the very opening, nice. um, and which is an, also another very visual movie. Right. Where there's just a lot of stuff going on. Cool. Um, I mean, and, and for me, the, the one thing just to, 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 you know, we touched on it briefly, but that opening scene with that swinging light, we've, we've joined, you know, we, you get the feeling watching it. You've just come in on something that you're, you're seeing the aftermath of something that's that either has gone wrong or something has happened with uh, with John Murdoch laying in the tub and there's light swinging and that just that great scene he gets up he's completely disoriented he's looking around he looks in the mirror and you know even though they don't they haven't established his character or what he's going through you get the sense that you know he he's completely just bewildered because he looks down at a pile of clothes and the look on his face is i guess these are mine you know, that, that he's got that, you, you sense without them telling you, you sense that this guy is just, he has, he's, has the amnesia. He, he doesn't know what's going on. He's completely out of his element. He's, he's out of touch with everything around him. Um, and I loved how they set that whole scene up. It was shot just beautifully, you know, from above and the swinging light. It was just great. Yeah, it, it almost had that apocalypse now opening scene feel. You're looking from yeah, overhead right. down at a guy, right? You know, right. That perspective, and he obviously had something happen. You're not sure what happened, yeah. and and I think that Murdoch, he's just going on instinct in that opening scene. He's just, I know I got to get this. I know yeah, I got to get out of here. That's all. That's all he has. Right. Yeah, that's all he has yeah. is his instinct. He has no memory. He has no recollection. He has. He, he doesn't know why he's there. So he he only. The only thing he can go on is instinct, and and you you get the sense of that as you're watching that opening scene. And there's movement in almost every single shot. You know, the shots aren't really long and languid like they are in 2001. They move quickly, and there's always something sort of moving you through them. There's another great shot when he is pulling all the papers out of his pocket, and he realizes that in his pocket are all of the clippings of talking about the deaths. And when they fall to the ground and they're blown away into the leaves they're blown like leaves up to the feet of Mr. Hand. He's standing there. The first time you see the strangers or that he sees the strangers, it, it, those crumpled papers kind of come up and then, you know, that moves from there. And it's always, it's always sort of physically moving you through a shot. Right. Another set that I thought was uh, awesome is when you see Kiefer Sutherland in uh, Schreiber realizes that they don't like water and he's put himself inside the pool. He's in the pool. And it right. has almost that feel of like the, yeah, the Val Luton cat people almost where, you know, you see the shadows of the strangers on the walls as he comes right. in and he's there. In the... and, and yet, even though he's in water, he's still like petrified of them and very subservient to them. And oh, yes, yes, yes. You know, and it, it's that's a, you're right, because I actually thought cat cat people uh, that, that that's uh, a great uh, uh, comparison there, Nathan, because you do you can't help but think that as he gets into the middle of the pool, you know, it's like he's trying to get away from them. He's trying to like stay away uh, or save himself from them. 
And Mr. Han has a great line is, you know how unpleasant we find all this moisture or something. Yes. Like <laughs> <laughs> oh. Okay. Any other final thoughts? No. No, not really. I think we've covered it completely in depth as much as humanly possible. Right. <laughs> well, I'm just trying to round the clock off because we have gone, I think, uh, let's see. We're almost beyond the length of the film. I'm we are. Sure we're we we're just, that, I'm know. looking at it here. Yeah, we're, we're, we're exactly <laughs> now. And as long as you, and then, you know what, if you leave in that little aside by Bill, then we'll, we'll have done it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it all gets left in. Right. Hey, hey, the the bit with the sawing, I actually moved to the end of the episode of 2001. So I put the, oh, okay. I put the Zarathustra music underneath the sawing and, and Dave's saying, what is that sawing sound? <laughs> so it's not in the podcast proper, but it's in the it's in the outtakes. Oh, cool. Anyway. Oh, thank you guys so much for joining. Jay, thank you so much. It was a it was a real uh pleasure to just talk this movie and talk it with you and with uh dave thank you so much for coming on and Mm -hmm. bill thank you uh guys go ahead and you can um plug all the stuff that you're working on jay uh what do you have coming up that you want to let everybody know about absolutely thank you i have a show called considering the cinema podcast it's for cinephiles anybody loves to talk about movies like we have here and uh dave is actually featured over there every month with the dvd infatuation podcast and tell the truth, that's the best part of Considering the Cinema is Dave's shows. So <laughs> check that out, ConsideringTheCinema.com. And then I have a horror podcast as well called Horror Movie Weekly. It's three hosts, review one horror movie every Sunday. You hear about stuff like The Corpse of Anna Fritz and pig-headed horror and stuff. So that's at HorrorMovieWeekly.com. And I just want to thank you again, Nathan and Bill, for having me on here on Phantom Galaxy. The pleasure is ours. Yes, yes, yeah. indeed. And you are welcome back anytime. Uh, Thank you. And Dave, how about you? Well, at first, let me say that Jay's being very modest because considering the cinema has a lot of uh, great content over there. And, yes, and I'm, I'm actually very happy to be uh, to be uh, associated with and part of it. And thank you, Jay, for uh, for inviting me to do this. You finally, for I don't know, for years you've been talking to me about doing my own podcast and I never even gave it a thought. Mm-hmm. And you've actually... Uh, <laughs> Give me a platform and I'm really enjoying it. Thank you. But there's there's tons of great content over it considering the cinema. So everybody should definitely go over and check that out. Um, as f- I tuned Dave to do that with a needle. There was a needle and a little tune. Yes. Yes, there was. <laughs> <laughs> I woke that, up. That I woke drill up. that goes in the forehead. <laughs> that, that's right. I woke, yeah. I woke up and in in I was in the tub and I was a little confused. And then there was Jay with a microphone. <laughs> Um, At least you still had all your kidneys. Uh, yeah, how do you explain exactly. the dead hooker? <laughs> <laughs> well, we haven't yet. We haven't even touched on that. Um, uh, uh, yeah, so um, I have, uh, of course, my blog, dvdinfatuation.com. Uh, I'm still posting every Thursday. Uh, sometimes it's one movie. Sometimes it's a uh, capsule reviews of a, a trilogy of films. Uh, so, And that's every Thursday. Um, and, uh, you know, just, uh, sort of pulling the curtain back a little bit. I have everything written through 2021. So I have, I have right now, uh, all the way up to December 30th of 2021, uh, posted and, uh, out there is going to be posting for, um, uh, on DVD infatuation.com. I'm on Twitter at DVD infatuation. I also have a Facebook page and, uh, something I'm doing right now is I'm, I'm counting down my, uh, my 200 favorite movies, 
Um, and I'm doing it alphabetically. Each day I'm posting a new one. I've come up with a list of, and it's funny, it's really the 200 movies of my life. It's not so much my favorite. These are the movies that just throughout my, I guess, my cinephilia, uh, for, for want of a better word, uh, just meant something to me. And from, from the time that I was a kid all the way up to now, these are the films I just keep going back and rewatching. Um, and again, I'm posting them one a day until I hit 200, which is going to take me, I think May 29th or 30th of 2021 will be when I finally hit 200, uh, and post the last one there. Um, and I'm having a lot of fun doing it, but, um, you know, it was actually very difficult to narrow it down to 200. I, 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 I was kicking myself for not making it 250, but then I thought, you know what, 200 is good because I had to make some very tough decisions about what to leave off of the list. Um, but these are the movies of my life. Say, can you give us, can you give us a sneak peek in which one was 201? Which would have been 201? Okay, what what would have been 201 that did not make the list? It might have been one that I just ended up removing. You know what? It would have been Black Narcissus, which is one of my all-time favorite films of, from, from Pal Pressburger. Oh, such a good movie. I love Black Narcissus, but you know what? When I'm looking at the movies that, that meant a lot to me going, you know, that one's a little bit more recent and it just didn't quite make the cut. So that would have probably been my 201 was Black Narcissus. But uh, I like I said, I could have gone to 250. Um, but I'm having a lot of fun doing that. Um, it, it's great. And I'm posting that over on Facebook, one a day. And I think right now, um, as of this recording, I just posted number 13. So I still got a long way to go. Um, I'm on Instagram and I'm on Letterboxd. And I'm actually tracking the same uh, project of mine over on Letterboxd, um, keeping a, a list running each time uh, I mention one of these 200 films i'm posting it on this list and on letterboxd uh and other podcasts as jay mentioned the dvd infatuation podcast over in considering the cinema um we have uh, i think episode four will be releasing this month and uh, episode five is in the can so it's uh it's um been a, it's been a great experience and i've had a lot of fun doing it and i thank you again jay for uh for hosting and editing and uh making me sound good over there um, of and, uh, of course the, uh, land of the creeps podcast with, with big bill here as my co-host uh, with, uh, Greg Amortis. And I was thinking, Bill, this might be the first time you and I recorded without Greg. I don't remember. Yeah. It's nobody's, nobody's holding my hand. I don't know if I can survive. <laughs> well, we did the Ray Harryhausen. I don't think Greg. Oh, that's right. Yes, that's right. Bill was oh, on the Ray Harryhausen. Right. That's right. That's right. So this is the second time that Bill and I are recording without Greg. You're absolutely right. Yep. So we, gotta, we have to have a hat trick number three sometime. There you go. Yep. And um, of course, a horror movie podcast uh, with Gilman Joel and Wolfman Josh. Yeah, I, and I'm not, I, I was going to say, I'm not going to do the Greg Amortis. No, no, that's Greg. So you got to <laughs> leave that to Greg. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. And yeah, and uh, the, the list that you've been putting up, the 200 movies, Dave, just uh, you've been putting on Facebook. It's been cool to see those. And I'm getting the feeling just over because it's what? You've done 11 or 12 of them already? Yep. 13, 12, 13 today. 13 today. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Um, because yesterday it was yesterday Armacord, maybe it was, and then I, oh, they, I'm a sure couple, I um, a couple days ago was Armacord. Then I did Andre Rublev and um, Angel Heart was today actually from oh, uh, yeah, Angel, Angel Heart. Heart. That's right. 
Okay. Well, thank you guys so much. Bill, is there anything you want to mention? Well the, well, the only thing I wanted to mention is the latest Undead Wookiee came out. But- well, not an actual Wookiee, no. A podcast <laughs> with our good friend Hugh Lloyd, and we went over 10 Rillington Place. So nice. check that one out. Yes, and Hugh will be joining us sometime soon. And we've got, uh, I also mentioned, our one uh, again, in, in another place you can hear Dave. Dave was part of our our audio horror episode. Where you read the Conqueror? Oh yes, Worm. yes, and, and thank you for and, um, inviting me for that. And I'm sorry it took me so long to get that over to you, <laughs> Nathan. Oh, no, it turned out great. It, we've got a great response on that. We are going to have back. Uh, we're going to do a Christmas ghost stories episode like Ooh, that, and nice. um, we've got a bunch of people coming up on that. So that'll be a lot of fun. We've got some more stuff coming up. Thank you guys so much for joining. And this is the Phantom Galaxy signing off. Take care. If you've been enjoying the music here on Phantom Galaxy, the opening theme and the closing theme are both brought to you by synth-pop artist Aries Beats. He's done a lot of really cool stuff in the world of synth-pop, a lot of very interesting genre-based retro themes. You can find more of his work over at ariesbeats.bandcamp.com. And until next time, we are the Phantom Galaxy. Thank you.